turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. I'm going to pray to start this uh, morning, and um, before that I want to make an announcement or a, a, a prayer request that I've received from Scott Rumley. Naomi fell and hit her head avoiding a cat, and uh, he thinks it's a mild concussion, but um, he's uh, praying and asking us to pray that he would have wisdom and how to handle it, and for her as she's having some confusion and memory issues initially. So I'm going to pray, and I ask you to join your hearts as we pray for Naomi Rumley and for Scott. Father in heaven, we come to you again, and we know that you hear our prayers and are in control of all things, and we bring uh, Scott and Naomi Rumley and their family to you this morning. We pray for Naomi that you would give her healing, that you would give her clarity, and that you would um, give her strength. And we pray for Scott that you would give him wisdom so that he might know how to care well for Naomi and uh, what kind of care to provide or to seek. Father, we lift them to you and we ask that you would bless them. We know, O oh Lord, that you work all things out for the good of those who love you. And we trust that this too is part of your sovereign outworking of your goodness for your people, for the Rumleys. We pray that you would heal her. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we come in Luke chapter 3, while I turn off my phone, to a genealogy. I want to say a few words of introduction about that to prepare us to read this. You see, sometimes when my children are misbehaving, I threaten them. I'm going to make them sit and listen as I read the first eight chapters of Chronicles. And the children uh, groan because now they know, after having heard about ten generations, that it's a long, lengthy list of names. And yet, I maybe am uh, a bit misguided in that threat because the genealogies are important. There are many of them in Scripture, and I'm reminded of... Uh, of a professor once, of, uh, he's now uh, since gone to be with the Lord, but a professor from Fuller Theological Seminary who spoke of a Jewish student in his class. And he had asked the student what his favorite passages in all of Scripture were, and this young man said the first eight chapters of Chronicles. Because this, under, this man understood that those genealogies that begin that book are a testimony of God's faithfulness to his people. And this morning as we come to Luke chapter 3, I want you to see also that this genealogy is a testimony. Indeed, it is, like all the genealogies, a testimony of God's faithfulness. But it's also a specific testimony of God's faithfulness in sending a Savior. In other words, through this genealogy, Luke presents to us a defense and a validation of this claim from the Apostle John. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so as we consider this genealogy in Luke 3, and I will read it in a moment, I want to say a few words to help you understand what we're going to, what you can expect. I'm going to give some general considerations about biblical genealogies, and I'm also going to uh, speak a bit about the nature of Scripture and how we ought to respond to God's Word, even these passages that seem a bit boring. In other words, what I'm saying to you is the application of this sermon I'm going to give you up front. And then we're going to compare briefly 
Luke's genealogy with Matthew's before we look at some of the specific features in Luke's account. And then we'll conclude by looking to Romans 5 to understand the import of what is here. But as I read, I'm going to punctuate these in, series, in seven generations because Luke has given us 77, 11 groups of seven. He doesn't draw attention to the structure, and so I won't say much about it afterward. But I think it will help us to listen to the reading of God's Word to help us get through the repetitiveness of the genealogy. So listen to these groups of seven as I read, beginning in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Matathias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosom, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Janam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Menna, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sadrog, the son of Reo, the son of Peleg, the son of Ever, the son of Shelah, the son of Kainan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kainan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Heavenly Father, this is your holy word. And we know that all Scripture is breathed out by the Spirit, that it is all profitable, it is all true, that it all is a benefit to us to strengthen our faith, to strengthen us in this life of faith, to cause us to live more like Christ. You work through your word, even these texts like this genealogy before us. We pray that, Lord, you would impart this word to our hearts and minds, that we would be hearers and doers of your word, that our faith might be strengthened. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to say a few words about biblical genealogies generally to help you understand why the biblical writers use them so often in their texts. See, once I had a Sunday school teacher who said he couldn't figure out for the life of him. What was the point of the genealogies? What purpose they served? And yet very often when we look closely at the genealogies, we see that the authors insert details that help us to see why the genealogy is placed where it is and what the author is using that genealogy to convey. Certainly there's a historical purpose in the genealogy. We need to reflect on the fact that Luke is very interested in the historical reality of what Christ had done. And so he draws our attention to historical truths, to historical facts, to the 
time and the date of things and the relationship to what's going on in the world. And this genealogy is no different. But it's also helpful to remember what I said in the introduction about how different cultures react to genealogies. For example, in the book of Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 64 to 65, we see the importance of genealogies there. You see, in Nehemiah's time, the people had come back from their exile in Babylon and Persia. They had come back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They had earlier come back to rebuild the temple as well under Ezra. And under Ezra and Nehemiah, the people were reconstituting the worship of God. And in that context, it was necessary to identify those who would become priests. But there were some men who could not establish their lineage. They could not be found in the genealogies. They thought they were part of the nation, but they, they were not. Or they, they might have been, but they couldn't prove it. And so in these, in these instances, these men were not allowed to be priests. They were not allowed to serve with the Levites because they could not establish their lineage. What I'm saying to you that is this, is the genealogies were extremely important in Israel's life. And people would have valued their ability to show their lineage and their relationship to the people of God. That is, their descent from Abraham. Their descent from the particular patriarch, whichever tribe they came from. And Jesus' family was no different. Their genealogy was important to them. And so it was accessible to Luke because Jesus' family would have had this genealogy. But there's a second aspect of the genealogy that we need to consider. From a Greco-Roman perspective, that is, it would have been a sign of honor. It would have impressed Greek readers to hear someone's genealogy. If I were to stand before you this morning and recite my genealogy as far back as I could go, I think that you might stand up and walk out. You'll tolerate me reading all of those names from the Bible, but mine, you're not going to listen. And it's boring. It's just a bunch of names. But they would have reacted very differently to it. In a book, uh, it's a historical fictional account by New Testament scholar Bruce Longenecker. But one of his characters, he imagines this man who is a, a Roman man, who is a prestigious man, a high-born man, and he's engaging with Luke's gospel. And he responds to this account in this way. I must confess, however, that the lineage of Jesus did not assist us in clearly locating Jesus' heritage, since almost all the names you mentioned are unfamiliar to us. What does stand out is that, despite being a peasant, Jesus could boast a long-established lineage. Presumably, his family would have clung to this small indicator of honor. What else would they have had with a hometown like Nazareth? I do not know if you have ever visited Nazareth, but it is not a very impressive place. Well, this character at the time in that book is is very concerned with status and honor. And so that's the way he reads Luke's genealogy. But we can be quite sure that Luke did not place it there to impress us, to make us think, wow, this guy can boast this long lineage, to make us think in terms of honor. For the characters like Mary and Joseph, they are examples of humility. Mary regarded herself as a servant, we have seen, and one who is of humble estate, she did not latch on to this genealogy in order to show that she was a real great person, nor did Joseph, nor likely did the brothers of Jesus, though they may not have began as humble men in becoming disciples of their brother, they became humble men. 
And so we might ask then, what other reason might Luke have had for placing this genealogy here in this way? And I submit to you that this morning, his concern is to show that the Son of God became a son of Adam. Therefore, he is able to save all mankind, all who receive him by faith. Now let me pause for a moment and talk about God's Word and how we respond to God's Word. I said I was going to deliver the application to you up front. I want you to recall that God's Word is trustworthy, that every aspect of God's Word is true. And in a moment, we're going to deal, deal with a problem or a challenge that we confront when we address the genealogies, namely that the genealogy in Luke is different from the genealogy in Matthew. And what we're going to find is that there's not a definitive, certain answer. But we know what the options that are, the ones that are before us. And my point in saying that is that we don't need to validate every single verse of Scripture from some outside historical proof in order to believe it. In fact, that ought not to be the way that we approach the text. There are some people that read Scripture always searching for some outside archaeological proof before they will believe it. We have so many proofs, an abundance of proofs that God's Word is true, that even if we lack the evidence to fully explain every single detail in a text, we should not immediately say, well, there goes my faith. It's just unraveled on that little thread. Sometimes this is important because you encounter people who will give you what I call the skeptic's bluff. In a game of cards, a bluff is when a person holds his cards and pretends that he has a good hand. But as he's holding his cards, he really doesn't have a strong hand, but he wants his opponent to believe he does so that his opponent will fold. And oftentimes, skeptics will say, well, you don't have the information, therefore my side is right. You don't have the proof, therefore my side is right. You just need to turn around and say, I'm sorry, but you don't have proof either. It is a fact that every single person in this room has two grandfathers and can trace two different lines of descent. You have two genealogies and many more. They call a family tree because it has many branches. The point that I'm saying, I'm putting before you is we may not know exactly how these genealogies are related to one another, but we do know that there were at least two lines of descent that were available to Matthew and Luke, and Matthew chose one and Luke chose the other. And I'll say a few words in a minute about which one I think Luke chose. But I want you to be confident in the Word of God even when you encounter things that you cannot explain. Just because you can't explain it doesn't mean it's disproven. And that's what some people want us to believe. They simply don't have the strong hand that they'd like us to think. The second thing I want to say about God's Word is that all God's Word is relevant. It's all breathed out as Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. It's all breathed out by the Spirit of God. It's all profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Not some of it, every part of it. And so when we encounter a text like this genealogy and we wonder, well, we can't see how that's profitable, keep looking. Keep thinking. Seek the guidance of someone who's thought more deeply about it. But don't simply turn the page and say, well, that's not relevant in my life. All of it is breathed out by God. 
And when we're not sure how, keep working at that and get the help from others who may be able to show you. Thirdly, how we disagree matters. There are important matters and there are less important matters. When we come to Scripture, we will not always come to the same interpretation as you're going to see in a moment. Very often, some of you have, asked, have said this to me, you want me, don't focus on all of the, uh, all the possible interpretations, just tell us what you think. And generally, I like to follow that advice. But sometimes I want to tell you what some other interpretations are. And one of the reasons why I do that is either I want to warn you off a bad interpretation that is maybe common, that, that we hear quite a lot, or I want you to know that not every opinion that I hold or that you hold is so important that we need to get into fights about it. The issue here is whether this genealogy is tracing Mary's line or a line belonging to Joseph. And opinions differ. And my opinion, I'll just say it, is that this is Mary's line. But many of the commentators that I've read have said this is a, Joseph, this is a line belonging to Joseph by virtue of an adoption. And you know what? That point is not that important. In both cases, we are affirming the important thing. This is God's word. It is true. It is without error in any part. And we can all agree that neither one of us is, is sure that we're 100% right. And so we need to learn how to agree and disagree when it comes to God's word. We need to learn how to prioritize what matters most and not get into fights about the, the little things. And so I've delivered to you those applications up front because I think they're important. I think this is a good illustration of how we can be trained, how we can be reproved and built up by considering how others have dealt with this text before us and the problems that are here in this text. But let us proceed then to thinking about this genealogy in comparison with Matthew's. You can find it in Matthew chapter 1 at the very beginning of his gospel. And if you want a full exposition of that text, you can go in our archives from November of last year. I preached on November 20th through this particular text. Matthew's, I would say, is actually much easier to get through because Matthew inserts a lot of strange details and has a lot of structure in his, in his genealogy. And so it gives us a lot of, to think about. But the main difference between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy is that Matthew establishes a legal descent. In other words, he's answering the question, who is the heir to the throne of David? And so he traces the genealogy of Jesus from, through David, and you'll see that there in the middle of verse 6 of Matthew 1, through his son Solomon the king, through Uriah, and uh, the son, that is, he mentions Uriah, and then through Solomon's son Rehoboam, and Abijah, and Asaph, and on and on. In other words, he's listing kings who came from David's line. And Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the son of David in the sense that he is the legitimate heir to the throne. Now, I'll say that a word about the idea of adoption. And we've talked about this in sermons before. In the ancient world, adoption was a little bit different. If you, for instance, had an uncle who, was, uh, who had no children you lived in the ancient world, he might adopt you as his son and designate you his son so that you would be the heir of his property and his 
prestige and his name. Now, inheriting that name would place you in his legal lineage, even if you are not biologically related to him. And that was a way for someone to keep his line going in the absence of an heir. It is possible that this happened to Joseph. We cannot say for sure, nor could we say with, uh, with absolute certainty whether if this happened, it's Matthew who presents this or Luke who presents this. But we can know that this is absolutely a possibility to explain the differences in the genealogies. But the main point here is that Matthew is presenting a legal descent. He wants us to see that Jesus is the heir of the throne of David. Instead, Luke is presenting something different. He wants us to see the the biological line in a sense, whether or not this is through Joseph by virtue of adoption or through Mary as I hold. He wants us to see a biological descent all the way back to Adam. Certainly, Luke's genealogy includes David as well. But what you see in the genealogy is that he departs from from, from Solomon's line. Solomon is not in this genealogy, but it goes through David by way of another son named Nathan. And then most of the names that we encounter from the rest of the way up this genealogy are names of people that we don't know. The only exception are Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, who are in both Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. And here it's also helpful to remember that all genealogical lines fold in on each other eventually. If I were to go back a hundred generations, it's impossible mathematically to say that uh, all of my 100th great-grandparents were unrelated. In fact, there are going to be people who are duplicates in my line. Otherwise, I'd have more ancestors than people who'd ever existed, you see. So what happens in these lines is they fold in on each other. This line that Luke presents is showing that Jesus is a son of David, but it doesn't trace Jesus' ancestry here through the kingly line. There may be a reason for that. Luke doesn't make much of it, but there is in Jeremiah a curse that Jeremiah pronounced on Jeconiah, who was the final king before Babylon destroyed uh, Jerusalem and carried the people off into exile. And in that particular curse, Jeremiah says that none of Jeconiah's offspring will sit upon the throne. And so this creates a kind of a paradox, a difficulty. God made a promise that David's offspring would reign forever on his throne, but God pronounced a curse by way of Jeremiah that Jeconiah's offspring would not inherit the throne. Well, how is that going to work? Here Luke gives us a different line from David, but not by way of Solomon that establishes the ancestry of Jesus. And that's one response, one reason for this that scholars have proposed. And so when we think about the differences in these genealogies, we can resolve those particular difficulties of a difference by simply saying, we know that every person has at least two uh, lines of of descent through uh, male grandfathers. And even though Jesus only had one biological grandfather through Mary, he had two grandfathers, one through adoption as he was the adopted son of Joseph. When we look at Matthew's genealogy, though, we see other points of comparison that aren't so difficult, but what we see is that Matthew presents it in a different location. You see, Matthew presents it right at the beginning of his gospel, 
He presents it in the birth narrative, but this helps us to see the importance of Luke's presentation. Luke doesn't situate this in the birth narrative. He situates it right before the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Notice those first words in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Luke presents this in the context of Jesus going forth into his ministry. And we're going to see in a moment how the themes that are in this genealogy make sense within that context. Because the mission, the ministry that Jesus is going to embark upon is not one to the Jews alone, but it's one to all peoples, bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. Luke's going to continue that narrative beyond the pages of his gospel into the book of Acts. He's going to show how the gospel goes forth to the nations. And here in the genealogy, Luke situates Jesus not just as a son of Abraham, not just as a son of David. At the beginning of his ministry, he situates him as a son of Adam as he goes forth in a ministry that would go forth to the ends of the earth. And so it makes sense that he would put it here. It also makes sense in the larger narrative because what we're going to find next week as we come to Luke chapter 4 is we're going to find a picture of Jesus in contrast with Adam. And so the last words that Luke leaves us with in this genealogy are words about Adam being the son of God to prepare us to see the contrast between Adam and Jesus as we see Jesus tempted by the devil. And you see, what I'm saying here is that he's placed this particular genealogy in, an, in a place that serves his narrative purposes. I've used this illustration before in Sunday school, and I think it's helpful. When I was young, I was, um, in high school, I had to read the book Moby Dick. And if you've ever read Moby Dick, you know that when you get to about chapter 32, you come to a book about a chapter all about whales, and you think, I thought I was reading a great novel, but now I'm reading a biology textbook about whales, and you say, what on earth is going on? But, but Melville, in that book, used the cytology to show the greatness of the whale who was a central character of his book, to show how great this beast was. In the same way, in a similar way, Luke uses the genealogy to show us something about Jesus about who he is and his role in God's purposes, in God's saving purposes for the whole world. And so he presents him as a son of Adam, tracing his lineage all the way back to Adam. Now, every one of us could trace our lineage in the same way if we knew who our ancestors were between here and Noah. You see, every single one of us is descended from Noah and every single one of us is descended from Adam. In that sense, these final oh, 10 or 11 generations, they're your final 10 or 11 generations as well. That's an important point. Luke didn't have to say that. Matthew didn't say that. No one today working on Ancestry.com traces their genealogy back that far. It's assumed. We all know that we have a common ancestor in Noah. But Luke does it because he wants us to see that point and reflect on this. In presenting Jesus as the son of Adam, he is showing us that he is our relation. That just as we are descended from Adam, he too is descended from Adam. And yet at the very beginning of this genealogy, Luke wants to show us a way in which Jesus is different from us too. Notice those subtle words there at the first verse. 
He calls him the son as was supposed of Joseph. Just that subtle reminder to say, don't you remember chapters 1 and 2? Jesus was born of a virgin. Yes, he's descended from Adam by way of Mary, but there is also something broken in this chain whereby he's not a descendant from Adam through a male ancestor. And that's important, we're going to see, in the way that that, uh, we are taught from the book of Romans in Romans chapter 5 about the similarity and the difference between Jesus and Adam. We are like Jesus in that we are humans descended from Adam. And that's important to see, or to put it in the language of Luke's genealogy, it's important to see that you and Jesus are cousins. You have a same you have, you have a similar ancestry, a shared ancestry. He is in our likeness, is what that is, is presenting to us. But he's also distinct from us, because he was not born in the way that we were born. These are the things that Luke is primarily drawing our attention to. We can look at all the other names. Most of them, as I've said, are people we don't recognize. They're not recorded anywhere else in Scripture. We can look at the fact that many of the people are named after patriarchs, that they share uh, common names with famous people in Israel's history. We could look at David. We could look at Jesse. We could look at Boaz. We could go all the way back to Abraham and look at all of those ancestors. And I would encourage you, if you're interested in that, go and find that sermon from Matthew chapter 1 and listen to that and those reflections there. But I also want to note that Luke does not draw any special attention to any single ancestor in this line except for Adam and Joseph at the very beginning. It seems to me that Luke wants to establish a true historical record, a testimony that can attest that, yes, this is Jesus' lineage, but the most important thing that he wants to set before us from a theological perspective is that Jesus was born of a virgin. Here's your reminder in his comments about Joseph. And Jesus is a son of Adam, a son of God. Here's your reminder in those last words in the genealogy. Well, why is all of that important? Why does all of that matter? And for that, I'm going to ask you to turn over to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning here in Romans chapter 5. I won't give you a second complete exposition, but I'm going to draw your attention to certain details in Romans 5, verses 12 through 17. Here what we need to understand is that our relationship to Adam is very significant in our life. The reason why we are sinners and the reason why we are condemned before a holy and righteous God is because we were born in Adam. We are condemned on account of his sin and our sin. His sin has come to us, Paul is going to present to us, in this text, because we were born in Adam. But we're going to see, and as we reflect on the virgin birth, that chain was broken in the case of Jesus. He was born in the likeness of Adam, but he was not born with the designation of in Adam. And so he did not inherit that same sinful nature that we are all born with. And so he is able to save us. Because he is in our likeness, but he is not in our first ancestor. 
So listen as I read these verses from Romans 5, verse 12 through 17. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought con- condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In in, in this passage, Paul presents Adam like a Trojan horse. Here's what I mean. Through Adam, sin and death came into the world in the same way as the Trojan horse in in that famous story from the Trojan Wars in Greece, when they brought that, that, that wooden horse into the city of Troy. And what happened when they opened up that horse? Their army, the army of the Greeks, spilled out and conquered the city. In the same way, through Adam, sin and death came into the world, and it spread to all of us. He's the one through whom it came. And it came with power like an army. It came with a hold over all of us. That's what happened through Adam. He is like that Trojan horse in the way in which sin came and gained a foothold in our world. And here in Paul's account, it's important to understand the logic of it. You have to see three terms. You have to see the word type, that Adam was a type, that is, he was like the one who was to come, namely Jesus. You have to see the words not like things that are not like something else, which Paul repeats again and again, and you need to see the way in which they're not like through that phrase repeated again and again, much more. Paul wants us to consider how Jesus is like Adam and how he is not like Adam, how his work is not like Adam's sin, and how the gift received through Jesus is not like the the transgression of Adam. And so he goes again and again to the way in which there's a likeness, a correspondence, and the way in which there's a difference in order of magnitude, a difference in degree. Sin came into the world through one man, Paul says, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And he makes the point that our transgression as sinners is not like the transgression of Adam. It's not that our transgression does not make us guilty before God. It's that our transgression does not function like that Trojan horse. It doesn't bring sin to all men. Our sin is received from Adam. That's why it's so important that Jesus was born of a virgin. God severed that chain in his life. Just as Adam was the son of God, that is, he was not born of a man or a woman, but he was made of the dust of the ground, and then God breathed into him. God brought him to life. How did Jesus 
How was he conceived? The Spirit of God came upon Mary and caused her to conceive in very much the same way so that he would be a second Adam, one like Adam. But with Adam, what came through him is sin and death. And so though there's a similarity with Jesus that something came through him, it's a difference, it's not the same thing. What came through Jesus is not sin and death, but righteousness and life. It's a qualitative difference, a difference entirely in terms of opposites. Not sin, but righteousness. Not death, but life. That's the logic of what Paul is saying. And it was possible for righteousness and life to come through him because he was not born in Adam. And it was possible for that life and righteousness to come through him to us because he was born in the likeness of Adam. So you see what Paul is saying here, this kind of logic as it unfolds. It's a difference in magnitude as well. Again, take a different image. Think about that sin that came through Adam as a river. It starts maybe as a stream or a trickle, but it begins to gather along the way and it becomes a rushing river, a mighty river, unstoppable in its force, a great flood that no one can turn back, flowing all in one direction. And the way that... Paul presents Jesus is that he steps into the midst of that river and he turns back its direction. Paul is saying that what came through Jesus is much greater, much more than what came through Adam because it completely reverses it for all who trust him, who all who are justified through faith in Christ. What comes to them? Righteousness and life. It overcomes what came to them through Adam. What came through Christ is much greater. So much more has righteousness and life come through that one man, Jesus Christ. Much more has the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many, turning back the flow of that great destructive river of sin and death. And that because... Jesus came in the likeness of Adam, but not as one who was in Adam. And there's one more way in which what came through Jesus is much greater, not just in terms of being able to turn back the sin and the righteousness. But he says in verse 17, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What happens in our lives is an extraordinary reality. The work that God has done in us through Christ is a work of such great magnitude that it overcomes not just the effect of one man's sin, but it overcomes the effect of many sins, of sin in our lives, every single one of us. If we trust in Christ, if we receive Him by faith, if we repent of our sin and turn to Him, for every single one of us, Christ is able to turn back the effect of sin and the death that it brings, bringing righteousness and life to us. And so you see, as Tom Schreiner says in his commentary, two atoms have exerted their influence on history, as we saw in Luke's genealogy. 
but the impact of the last Adam is greater than the former. And the way in which Luke shows this is by reversing the genealogy, just like Christ reversed the work of the fall in our lives. For normally when you read a genealogy, you read it from the head, from the father to the son. Matthew begins with Abraham. Go to Genesis and you see again and again, Abraham begot his son. But here, Luke doesn't begin with Abraham or begin with Adam. He begins with Christ. Going back to Adam, showing in this way that what is happening here is reversing what Adam brought into the world. And that's the message that's going to go forth in the person of Christ and in the work of Christ, and in the message that he proclaims, a gospel for all nations. And so let me conclude with this closing reflection. As I said in Luke's account, we have a genealogy that overlaps with ours. Luke wants us to see that Christ is not just for one people. He wasn't just for the Jews. He was for the Jews and the Gentiles. For all who are born in Adam, you and me, and the reason why we can be saved, the reason why we have a Savior is because we have a Savior who is God, the Son of God, who came in our likeness. Where Adam failed as a Son of God, he is faithful as the Son of God, the perfect Son of God. And this is why we can be saved. And this is why we can have life. This is why we can be made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ and through God's sanctifying work in our lives to cause us to be conformed into the image, not of the first Adam in whose likeness we were born, but in the last Adam in whose likeness we have been reborn and our being in whose likeness we are being conformed through faith in Him and through the work of our great God. That's what this genealogy is for. That's its purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all of these texts before us confront us with a question that you put before us. Will we trust in the Son whom you sent? For many of us here, we have already placed our trust in him. And yet you call upon us to grow in our faith, to grow in our trust, to grow in his likeness. Lord, we pray that you would continue to produce the answer, that simple answer in our hearts. Yes, we will trust him. Yes, we will trust him forevermore. For you have given us a Savior who is like our first father and yet much more than he was, much greater, infinitely greater. And the work that he's done is infinitely greater in our lives. And through him, we have salvation. So make us to trust him. And Lord, if there are any here this morning who have not yet placed their faith in him, I pray that you would work that in their hearts. So many come to you in the strangest ways, it seems. May some come to you this morning through the preaching of a genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.